This passage is taken from John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20 and 31 to 47. Dispute over Jesus' testimony. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. Dispute over whose children Jesus' opponents are. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, 
you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Hi everyone, it's um, good to be back together again. We're going to jump into the passage of John, but before uh, we do, I thought it would be really good to give you a little bit of an insight to this um, room that we're filming in each week. So what's this for skill? You can see um, my camera here. Can you see Andrew there? Give us a wave, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Holly, respecting her socially distanced kind of measures, doing some work at the back, and here's Matt doing the, the sound stuff. So in your home, why don't you give these guys a round of applause? Can you hear it, guys? Can you hear the round of applause? Can you hear that, that noise? That is noise to your ears right there. Very good. Wonderful. Oh, don't look at this camera. Look at this one. All right. Okay. Well, there you go. Just a little bit of an insight into the, I was going to say depressing picture, but these guys cheered up a little bit that we have to preach to each week. Um, but we hope you and your homes are continuing to feel blessed and continuing to be encouraged in these difficult for lots of us days. Um, so this morning we're going to go further into the passage in John chapter 8, um, this little mini-series, if you like, through the book of John that we've been looking at to date. We have um, become aware of the invitation of Jesus into this deep level of friendship and mutual indwelling of loving surrender to one another that uh, he's inviting us into, which has always been God's heart. And some people have decided to follow Jesus and some people have decided to give up and Jesus' great cry is this invitation to a river of living water that can satisfy your souls like nothing else can, the very source of life itself. And we've learned that this river is flowing, it's not lacking, it's getting greater and greater, more and more and more depth, and it's flowing to the dead places in order to bring life and love and power and transformation. And we've seen how this is great news. This is wonderfully liberating news, life-giving presence, filling up our souls. And yet we've also seen how this is challenging news um, because it confronts the parts of our lives which seek to try and find that sense of righteousness and holiness, that sense of purpose and staying in control of our lives independent of God. And that's manifested through this gospel in the lives and the reactions of the Pharisees, I suppose, most of all. And we notice parts of that within ourselves. And that's why the Word of God both caresses our souls and challenges and confronts our hearts. And then we had this explosive kind of incident last week when we looked at this first part of John 8, where we see how these man-made constructions of holiness displayed in the actions of the Pharisees, how they all clash with this river, with this grace of God that's flowing to broken hearts like the woman caught in the act of adultery. But Jesus is challenging this because he's saying that we're not, we're judging, you're judging, he's saying to the Pharisees and others by human standards and not uh, uh, judging by God's standards. And in the end, you're not reflecting God at all. And so what I think that we're really starting to explore and what uh, personally I've been really um, exploring and uh, finding out afresh and with more revelation than I ever have before is the essence of the holiness of Jesus as we've opened up these passages. You see, it's really important to realize that holiness and love are not two separate things 
in God. But often I think we've been brought up to think like that. We've created uh, an unhealthy dualism of love and uh, holiness. And we've kind of divorced them in the church. And John talks about Jesus being full of grace and truth, love and holiness. And often we think you have to trade one off against the other. Sometimes we even preach like that. We say things like, oh, we've heard a lot about the love of God. Now it's time to hear something about the holiness of God, as if they're kind of separate or in competition. But this isn't who God is. I think it's Tim Keller who says, truth without grace is not really truth. And grace without truth is not really grace. Love and holiness are not separate, but rather love is the essence of holiness. I think maybe a good example would be if you remember when you were a child and you maybe fell off your bike or you fell and you hurt yourself and you had a pretty nasty gash and you went into your parents to kind of get that healed up or whatever. And there was that moment because what a loving parent does in that in those, in those moments is they realize an infection could set in. And so because they love us, they give us um, some cr- cream or antiseptic cream or whatever it might be, and initially that stings. And, uh, but the sting comes because it's wrapped up in love that wants to heal. And I think that's Jesus' approach, if you like, in a simple way. It's grace and truth. The truth will sting at times if we let it. But if we let it sting, it will bring healing to the poison of sin in our hearts. And the thing about it is you can't get the perfect balance of grace and truth just by writing a theory or a document or a theological transcript even on each of them and trying to mash them together. No, you only get the balance. The balance comes in a person. They meet together in Jesus. They can only be brought together in Jesus. He is grace and truth. He is the standard. Remember, we're not called to follow a doctrine or a dogma or a theory. We're called to follow a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is ultimate meaning, Jesus. And it's the knowledge of the truth, not just the truth, but the knowledge of the truth, and the truth is Jesus, as we'll come to see in this passage, that really sets us free and gives us the life that only Jesus can offer. And so as John 8 unfolds, we see Jesus trying to break into these mindsets. He's trying to Uh, these mindsets that people are entrenched in. He's he's challenging their systems and he's looking to crack into their hard hearts and their hardened understanding of what truth really is and what holiness really is and what God really looks like. And so after... you know, after this passage of the woman caught in adultery, Leslie's read to us today, and that opening verse in the scriptures that she's brought us says, I am the light of the world, Jesus speaking. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is declaring that light has come into the world. And if we follow him, we can walk out of our darkness out of our own self-centered shadows, out of our sin and bondage, and into his light. And that light will fill up our lives and help us to see the world and our life itself with a new God reality. And the verse kind of helps then uh, develop a bit of a framework for how the passage is going to unfold. So Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, and we can walk out of darkness into his life. And that's important because as the conversation develops, well, Jesus is going to have a dialogue and a bit of a ding-dong with the, with the Jews in this passage and those who are following him. He's not doing it to win an argument just. He's not trying to prove a point. 
there's something bigger going on here which we're going to become aware of. The big cosmic battle between light and darkness, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy of darkness. There's, there's a clash going on. And Jesus has come right into the middle of that to challenge the kingdom of darkness, which tries to enslave people. Um, and so Jesus is going to go right after the roots of that, and it's not going to go down that well, as we will see. And what we're going to see as we go through is, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see this, this big battle unfold uh, over the next 15 minutes or so. But what's important for us to notice now is that Jesus isn't just exposing, let me call it like the big bad sins that we grew up thinking were the worst sins in the world, the sins of the, of the flesh, the things that we grew up thinking that you couldn't do, like you're drinking and smoking and saying bad talk and you know, getting involved in too many relationships and all of those things, which aren't good for us. We know that. But Jesus is going beneath those things to the root of sin itself, to a more insidious type of evil, which has the veil or the cloak of religion over the top of it. And Jesus wants to expose that in a pretty intense way to say that this has its roots in the devil himself. And in all of this, Jesus is doing it because he's saying to these Jews, I believe, listen, I'm trying to provide you with a way out here. I want you to know the truth that we've heard in this passage, and the truth can set you free because you are the ones who are enslaved by sin. You're judging by human standards, and you're judging wrong, but because I'm here with the truth, you can be set free. This is your opportunity for freedom. We've seen last week how Jesus' holiness, his grace and truth showed up in the middle of this episode with the woman caught in the act of adultery, and it seems to lead her into a place of freedom. But the rest of the passage seems to be challenging those who are even arguably more enslaved to sin because there's something deeper at work there. And what we're going to learn is to be good apart from God is as bad as to be evil apart from God because both of them are disconnected from the source of life. And so we have to dig a bit deeper. This is quite a challenge today, so hopefully it doesn't come across too intense, but I do want us to respond to what I think the Lord has an opportunity to do with us in these days that we're living in. And Jesus is pushing deeper with these guys now, challenging their sin and pride. And maybe he's going deeper with us as his people in these moments because we start to understand something about the essence and the roots of sin and how we can deal with that. There's three things I want to leave you with today. The first thing that we learn about this passage about sin is sin enslaves us. Verse 34, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So it's not just the things that we do. We're a slave to something deeper in us. Sin stops us from becoming who we're created to be. It it gives you an illusion that you're free, but you're not. It entices us into a false sense of security, of thrill, and of power, and of identity. But actually, you're deeply enslaved. Sin is like a bad version of lockdown. You, you think you can go here, there, and everywhere, but you actually can't. You're never really free. St. Augustine said, Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? Sin is a cancer. It's a poison in our souls. It fractures 
the very personhood of our beings, and it breaks our connection with God ultimately. And the thing about it is that the older we get, the more we realize that those big bad sins that we are enticed by maybe when we're younger, we start to realize that they actually don't satisfy us. They, they don't live up to what we thought they were going to live up to. Um, and um, we're still tempted by them, and often we're still failed by them, but we know that they don't um, satisfy. And many of us will can testify to that, and many people have. But the, but the sins that are not as obvious, the sins that lie in the shadows of our lives that we're not often aware of, those are the ones that actually keep us more enslaved. And this is where we get to the root of sin, which is a self-centeredness. It's the sin of independence of and from God. It's a sin of actually wanting to be God. And it's expressed in our lives in different ways, and it's often expressed from those who are sympathetic or even who claim to have a Christian faith, people who want to even be good, upstanding citizens. But the problem is we want that on our terms. When it comes down to it, we still want to be in the driver's seat of our lives. We still want to be at the control center. And we don't like to hear this, but what we're talking about here is the sin of pride. And Jesus is challenging that in these passages. Throughout church history, um, many people have remarked on how this is the ultimate almost and most dangerous sin of them all. Listen to these words from the great C.S. Lewis. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, and drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. This is strong stuff. But pride, we are told in the Bible, is what God resists. And yet Jesus in his mercy is standing before these guys, giving them a way out. He says, verse 35, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Jesus wants to set them free. He wants to set us free today. Freedom is what he came for. Freedom is the direction that Jesus is walking in, and that's the way I want to follow. And yet the thing about it is, for these guys, it's not just that he wants to let, uh, set them free from their personal sin. He wants to do that first and foremost, but he wants to crack open the sin systems of the day that kind of rule and govern people. The world is full of sin systems. The Bible says that uh, it talks about it, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. And there's sin systems that we just get caught up in by nature of the world in which we live. That's why we have to be constantly renewing our mind. And there was a religious sin system of the day in place. Now, we've alluded to this over the last few weeks, but many of the Jews were caught up in this. And well, in many of them, there was a, a, a genuine deep respect for Yahweh to, to worship God and to have one God and all of, all, all of that, the essence of the Torah and of the Old Testament. The problem was they allowed the shadow of self to deceive their understanding of God and others. And before they knew it, they'd created a system which masqueraded for the truth, but it wasn't the truth. And what we see is a shame-based perversion of the truth in the religious system of the day. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a system of freedom. It was a system that was suffocating people. 
It wasn't the gospel. It was a religion that sought to bring conformity rather than freedom and transformation. It wasn't a river of life bringing life to dead places. And what happens is when men and women allow the seed of sin and pride to rule in their hearts, this is what happens. We create systems not driven by the spirit of Christ, but driven by the spirit of pride. We see that in the institutions of our world. And unfortunately, sometimes we see it in the church too. And the reason I mention this again is because I believe we're living in days where one of the signs of the times of the spirit at work is these systems are being exposed. There's a stripping of the false promises that many of these systems offered us. And uh, they're being exposed in these days. The, the thing about a global pandemic is, and this is acknowledged by almost everyone in every sphere of society, is that it humbles us. We're the whole, and not, not that God sent it for that, but God uses what has happened, and we're being humbled by this process. And in that humbling, there is an opportunity for light and truth to get through. And as a people of God, that's what we're praying for. But it starts with our own hearts first, doesn't it? And Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, is here to lead us out of slavery, out of sin, into freedom, into life, and into liberty, to become the people that we were originally created to be, our true selves, to become free sons and daughters. The second thing, number two, that we learn about sin in this passage is that sin leaves no room for Jesus. The really sad thing about this passage is, as much as Jesus showed up to offer freedom to these guys, the truth that would set them free standing in front of them, they think they don't need to be set free. And maybe this is the worst sin of all, rejecting the Spirit of God at work. They said to Jesus in verse 33, We are Abram's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can, you say that we will, how can you say that we shall be set free? In other words, we don't need to be set free. We're children of Abraham. They don't want to think of themselves as slaves, you see. We've never been slaves. That's not true. They, they had been slaves. They've been slaves in Egypt for years. They've been slaves in um, exile for years under foreign occupation because of the sin of their forefathers. It was like they hadn't learned. What we, what we see here is people who have such a handle on what they think is the truth that they can't actually handle the real truth. At this point, I really want to try and see that gif come across the screen from the part in A Few Good Men, if you know the scene, where Jack Nicholson, Nicholas and Tom Cruise go head-to-head -head in court, and Tom Cruise says, I just want the truth. And Jack Nicholas replies, you can't handle the truth. Did you like my American accent there? I hope you did, right? But that's what's going on here. These guys can't handle the truth. Jesus is responding to their claim that they don't need to be set free. And he says this, I know you're Abram's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because, here it is, you have no room for my word. That's what the root of sin and pride is. That's where it leads you. There's no room. There's no room for the voice of Jesus. You can't handle the truth. You don't, we don't want to hear the truth. It leaves no room for the other voice, the voice from outside of ourselves, the voice that we can't tell ourselves. 
when we're still, that's why stillness and silence is important because we hear a word that we can't speak to ourselves. It comes from beyond us, right into the depths of who we are. And Jesus is speaking to these guys who have no room for him and they can't hear this other voice. They're so convinced by the head noise in their own heads and the voices of their own mouths that they're convinced they know the truth and they miss the truth himself standing in front of them. And unfortunately, we've fallen into that trap at times as the church, generally speaking, like the truth, the Jews in this passage, we often think we're the truth dispensers, yeah? We are the exclusive elite defenders of the truth. And what started off with good motives sometimes often ends up with taking the place of God himself, trying to point to our understanding of the truth rather than to God himself. You see, pride makes you want to win arguments, wants you to build an identity on your ideology or your theology more than it wants to point to truth, Jesus himself, and to reflect him in your life. These guys were so convinced by their own truth that they couldn't see the beauty and the glory of God standing in front of them. C.S. Lewis goes on and says this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You cannot see God. He is above and beyond us. They don't think they need to be set free. They're relying on their nationality, their legacy, their status. <laughs> and they, those things have become idols that they've put their trust in rather than recognizing their need for grace like broken human beings as the rest of us. There's no humility, no posture of dependency, no openness to the spirit. This is the sin against love that we see in the elder brother and the prodigal son who doesn't know what's available because there's no room for Jesus. And so the challenge to us today is we need the spirit of Jesus in our land. We need to break these categories and we need to receive in a posture of humility and openness a fresh word of the Lord to change and transform us. And so is our pride stopping us today? Is it, is it not making room for Jesus? Are we so fixed in what we believe or what we're committed to or where our lives are going that we have no room for a fresh word from the Lord and from the voice of God? And so I want to encourage you to develop a healthy awareness of your own frailty and fickleness, <laughs> not in a condemning way, but in a mature self-reflecting way to think about how we can hear from the Lord daily. The words of the psalmist are probably the best place to go. Search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be anything wicked in me and lead me in your righteous, everlasting paths. Leave, leave room for Jesus. And then the third thing to notice about sin in this clash between Jesus is that sin is built on a lie from the devil. At this stage of the discussion near the end, the gloves have kind of come off, right? Jesus is trying to get to the very heart of the root of the problem and where their version of truth comes from. And he says this, let me just read these words again, verse 39. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come, sorry, verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
At first glance, when you read this, you're like, all right, then Jesus, say what you mean. This is like, is it really that bad, Jesus? Like, these are people that kind of probably observed the Sabbath, probably read the Bible, probably went to synagogue, and you know, and you're telling them their father's the devil. Is it really that bad? It all seems a bit intense. And then when you step back and think about it a bit more, you start to realize how serious Jesus is for our freedom. You start to realize how and remember how Jesus came to destroy the works of enemy, to put him to flight, to plunder the enemy's camp. You start to remember how Jesus came to confront the lies of the, of the enemy that had been seated in the hearts of his children and God's image bearers for far too long. And you start to realize that this is why Jesus is going for the jugular here. That's, this is why he's going for the root of this because he's coming to expose the root of sin and pride that comes from the lie of the enemy. And he wants to set his people free. He wants to provide a way out, which is going to cost him his life. And so he's laying a plane before them. He's coming to tell them that their religion is built on an illusion and it's built on a lie. And it's built on a lie that's rooted in the enemy. And pride is what got him kicked out of heaven. And pride is what's going to keep you out of heaven, he's saying. He's reminding them that the enemy's a liar. He's always been a liar. He can't do anything else but lie. Let's remember what happened in the Garden of Eden. This is the age-old tactic. The enemy introduces the lie into Eden and into Adam and Eve's minds, and the poison of pride starts to infiltrate humanity. He says, did God really say? (laughs) Did God really say? You see the way he's trying to distort the truth from the very beginning. He questions the character of God. He distorts her understanding, and then he goes on to say, if you eat of this tree, then you can be like God. Wow. That's the root of our problem right there. The enemy wants us to follow his lead. You see, he wasn't content with just being another angel. He wants to be God himself, and he wanted us to follow him into that. It wasn't enough for humanity to be like God, to be an image bearer, to be a partner of God on the earth. It wasn't enough for us to be like God. We wanted to be God. The enemy caused us by our... uh, collusion with his lie. He, he caused us to move out of the relational flow of father and son and father and daughter, this free-flowing relationship of love. And so as fallen sinful people now, we push for recognition. We strive for status. We manipulate ways to get ourselves at times to the top of the tree, to be noticed. And as we are enticed by this lie that we see in the garden. The root of sin and pride is established in our hearts. And then what is introduced on top of that is the two arch enemies to humanity and to the children of God for centuries and fear and shame. We were afraid and so we hid and we were ashamed and naked and so we covered ourselves up. And these are the things that immobilize the church of Jesus today. And Jesus is here to set us free this morning from these things. And so often as sinful people, we build our lives out of these motives, out of this sinful, prideful motive. We're fighting for identity. We're fighting for recognition. And then more than that, like like the religion of the Jewish system of the day, we we build systems that uh, are, are based on fear and shame. Fear that you might not be part of the group. Fear that you might not fit in. Fear that you might be left out. Fear that you might not 
measure up and all the shame that comes along with that. And Jesus comes today and he comes into our hearts and he walks into the rooms of our lives today and into the living rooms wherever we're watching today and he wants to expose the lies that the enemy has seeded into us and he wants to tell humanity, he wants to tell us today that if the Son has set you free, that you can be free indeed, free to be free sons and daughters, to become all that you were originally created to be. And the main lie, as we draw this to the conclusion, the main lie that Jesus wants to confront is what God looks like. The enemy's tactic has always been to distort our image of God. This is what the devil's been doing from the beginning, as we've alluded to. It affects our heart, our understanding of God, our understanding of others, our understanding of the world. And this is what's happening in this passage. These people who claim to be the descendants of Abraham can't recognize God standing in front of them. It reminds me of those words of Tozer. What comes into your head when you hear the word God is the most important thing about you. When you think of God, what do you think about? Someone who shames you into forgiveness? No, no, no. No one was ever punished into purity. I want to encourage you today to think about Jesus. God is like Jesus. The whole point of what John's trying to say here and what Jesus says himself, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He is light. He is truth. These are big themes today. The light of the world, the truth incarnate. Walk into the freedom of the Spirit. What Jesus has done for us and because of that, freedom is available. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And so I want to encourage you. Why don't you take a few moments to allow God to expose the lies. Face the truth, even if it stings. Knowing that there is a good Father who wants to lead us into freedom. Freedom from the enemy. Freedom from the lies that we believed about ourselves to become the people that he's called us to be. I love the words of Brenning Manning. Define yourself radically as one beloved of God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. I think this is really applicable for us today as we finish. Because there's a battle going on. Darkness is doing its best. It's coming out fighting. Because the light is increasing. The great light of the world is increasing his presence in our lives today. And in our world today as God's people cry out to him. The darkness is becoming more and more exposed. And as John started off his gospel... The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it or understand it. In the light of God's love, allow your shadows to come into the light. Allow him to love them to death so that you can experience his life. I've had had some shadows exposed over the last number of weeks. I've journaled a lot. I've walked a lot. I've died all over again as the shadows of my own sinful pride, of my need for status, of my need for recognition, of my need to be known, all of that stuff's rose up in me again. And as I brought it before Jesus, slowly but surely, I felt the forgiveness of his presence just washing over me again and leading me into life to become more translucent, shining with the brightness of his glory. I want to finish with the prayer of Thomas Merton, And um, the words will maybe be on the screen. Let this be our prayer this morning. Give me humility in which alone is rest. 
and deliver me from pride, which is the heaviest of burdens. Possess my whole heart and soul with the simplicity of love. Occupy my whole life with the one thought and the one desire of love, that I, am, that I might love not for the sake of merit, not for the sake of perfection, not for the sake of virtue, not for the sake of sanctity, but for you alone. For there is only one thing that can satisfy, love and reward, and that is you alone. God bless you today.